Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Amelia Gammon is the inspirational founder of Bide. After living a conflicting life between successful corporate businesswoman and secret hippie, Amelia took the plunge at the start of the pandemic to work on something more meaningful. Bide has created a unique business model that combines positive social, environmental and economical impact. Instead of using the standard factory model, Bide have built their own home manufacturing network, providing work to historically marginalised people. By training these people, give them the raw ingredients and pay them to create products that are plastic and toxin free, being made by five simple plant-based ingredients. Amelia explains how this scalable impact model can be applied to any market to provide ethically and environmentally sound products, whilst also being a new way of working for those that struggle to work conventionally. Hey Amelia, thanks for joining us today. Good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, so I always like to start by just setting the scene a little bit. So it'd be great if you could just give like a brief overview of your, your background, kind of upbringing, career, anything that's kind of provides greater context to what led you into creating Bide. Yeah, I mean, I would say that my career history is probably the perfect timeline for getting into being a purpose-driven um, entrepreneur and that I started off as a ballet dancer, um, which is obviously essential training uh, for running your own company. If you can do a part of shy, you can do anything. Um, so I started <laughs> off as a dancer and um, got a taste of travel and came back to the UK to earn some quick cash in order to keep dancing around the world and fell into media. Um, so I went from making cups of tea for large sales teams to working for some of the biggest media companies in the world, having an incredibly high flying job, creating the hugest carbon footprint, flying all over the world, making lots of money. For people that perhaps didn't deserve to have so much money um and i kind of had a conscience crisis uh as i came of age and started having a family and was like something's got to change so that's the kind of the context of how my business all started nice um before we talk specifically about biden and what you do and how you do it i always like to talk about the the kind of like the the impact areas you focus on and what i really like about biden is that there are two very specific impact areas that you look at um number one there is the kind of social impact of, of unemployment especially of like unskilled and marginalized workers um and then there's also the kind of climate side of, of consumer brands uh, and how they are starting to badge themselves up more and more as eco-friendly and sustainable when that's not always the case. If we look at the first area of, of employment or unemployment of unskilled workers um, or marginalised workers, what, what what is the like social problem there and, and why are there so many barriers to these people being able to find work? Yeah, and actually, when I first started doing this, I used the term unskilled, and now I don't because... They are incredibly skilled. It's just that those skills haven't been previously surfaced. And, and part of the biggest issue that we have right now is that the common understanding of working is that you get up, you leave your home, you go to a place of work, you do your job, and then you return back to your house. If through personal circumstances that may be related to health, perhaps you're a carer, a single parent, you live in a refuge, you're homeless, 
then you can't participate in work in the way that, that's expected to do so, which means that there is a massive proportion um, of available workforce that's underutilized um, and as a result become marginalized. So globally, 34% of the global population is made up of people who are refugees, people um, who are prison leavers, and people with addictions, um, and those who don't have a permanent place um, of residence. Those are all the types of people that we work with who historically have been overlooked when it comes to being um, viable contributors to their local economies and to the local workforce. Um, so, you know, it's not a problem um, that's getting better. And in fact, it's a problem that's getting worse. And in fact, there's so much innovation around future of work in terms of um, uh, conventionally skilled roles, but there's no future of work innovation for people who don't have that type of experience or, or higher education. Got it. And I believe that well my view is as well that employment is key to that like those people that are recovering from addiction or um looking to get back in society like employment is key like they need the the regular money coming in to allow them to go and actually avoid kind of get into some of those situations that they've come from in the past yeah i mean it's 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 a financial thing i would say if you interview the people that we work with um financial you know the financial part of it is obviously a key component but there's a huge amount of um, pride associated with with having work. Um, there is actually um, a big interest in being environmental kind of citizens, I guess, and helping to um, address climate crisis, but they've never been able to afford the opportunity to do so. So um, they feel like this gives them an opportunity to, to kind of create a voice and make change themselves. Um, but the biggest part, I think, is really is the ability for them to be active in their local communities, because if you are somebody, you know, if you've got um, if you've got care or responsibility and you can't leave your home, that's incredibly isolating. So to be able to connect with something that enables you to work from home and also um, be part of um, your kind of local community is really, really empowering. And then to talk about the kind of second area that you, that you have an impact on, which is the climate crisis specifically in terms of I see it as a consumer like the rise in kind of green eco-friendly sustainable brands and it's hard to tell the good from bad um it'd be good to hear from you in terms of what some of the challenges are associated with consumer products relating to kind of like broader climate change yeah I mean that's a big topic and I feel like we maybe need days to kind of go through it and I think you've alluded to greenwashing and how detrimental it can be particularly for smaller companies like ours in comparison to the big you know, the big megastars like a Procter & Gamble or a GSK who've got the money to be able to really clutter the market with greenwashing. Although, conversely, I do more recently think that greenwashing is kind of helpful because at least it starts stimulating the conversation about being more eco-friendly um, and whether products actually are going the full length they need to do, at least that positive conversation gets consumers thinking and challenging and questioning what they're choosing to spend the money on and, and, and you know, where things derive from. Ultimately, it's not the consumer activity that's going to solve the climate crisis on its own. It has to be the combination of effort of consumer changes, which obviously influences demand, which then in turn um, gets those big companies that I described earlier, kind of rethinking the way they make things and source things. Um, and it has to extend to the government level where they start creating kind of new policies to make sure that actually the environmental standards the right environmental standards are put in place and all businesses and all kind of um, participants in our kind of bigger society have to, to reach those. But I think that, that for us, uh, when thinking about our environmental impact, 
it wasn't a secondary consideration. It was the absolute grassroots of our organization that we would go the, the most principled route we could to make sure that the environmental credentials of the products that we're producing are the highest possible standards. Um, it's, it, it's difficult to take that approach because it's much more expensive. You know, synthetic materials are much cheaper than things that are derived from nature. Um, it's incredibly complex because the rules are constantly changing. We have a strategic partnership with Greenell University who are our environmental management um, advisors. And they're constantly kind of updating us on, on kind of new thinking as it relates to different types of business processes and which is more environmentally beneficial than others. And then the most kind of pertinent point, which you kind of address at the top, is how do you actually transfer what, all of that information to consumers so they can make that choice? Because, you know, if you've got one brand telling you that they are eco when perhaps they're not, and then you've got us also telling you that, how on earth do you get them to believe and, and trust in, in what you're saying? Um, so it is a massive challenge, but it's um, a challenge that I kind of wrote in sand when when we started the company. Um, and it's certainly not something that I'm going to back down from. So uh, we'll just kind of keep pushing and fighting the good fight. And that's probably a good segue for the, the listeners to understand. Like, Would you be able to just explain what Bide is, like what you do, how you do it? Absolutely. So Bide is a consumer brand creating eco-friendly products. But instead of making them in factories, we bring factories to the kitchen tables of historically marginalized people across the UK. So what that means is that um, we train people in how to make each of our um, eco products in their own homes. So we supply them with the raw ingredients. We literally deliver it to their doorstep so they don't have to even leave their homes. They hand mix and pack um, the products. We collect them and then we distribute it to our end customers, both on a D2C basis, but also um, our business partners. Incredible. And I guess going back to the point there about the um, the steps you've taken and that the grassroots principle of the business was around responsible, sustainable product. Can you talk about, from a product perspective, what the actual steps are that Bride have taken to do those things? Obviously, I understand it's 100% plastic free, very, very um, focused in terms of like the, the ingredients being used and sourced. Like it'd be good to understand that in a bit more detail. Yeah, so um, so I tried not to use the word sustainable. I'm either use responsible or thoughtful, and I kind of interchange between the two of them. Because ultimately, the starting point for us is that humans are not sustainable. We haven't been sustainable since we were probably all um, in caves. Um, and I think it's a bit of a misnomer to talk about sustainability unless it's, it's truly reflective of the way that we kind of organize our lives. So responsible and thoughtful for me are better ways to describe it because it means that we have thought very, very carefully about every aspect of what goes into making our products and the process of making them to make sure that they are as environmentally sound as possible. So we made a very bold decision at the at the beginning to choose packaging um, that was basically useless. Uh, so we chose packaging that at its end of life, you could compost it very easily, which means that we don't expect it to last very long. It's very unusual because normally consumer brand products is all about kind of beautiful design and longevity and, and, you know, kind of selling the experience in the packaging itself. And we've taken the reverse and said, no, actually, what's inside is most important, not the outside. Actually, I've just realized that's a bit of a, a bit of a hippie statement, isn't it? It's not about, you know, you don't judge a book by its cover, it's what's inside that counts. So all of our packaging is made from 100% pre-recycled craft paper pouches. 
that are lined with the plant cellulose, which creates a barrier for us so that, that we can put liquids in as well as powders. And then they're sealed using a starch ziplock. So you could, if you wanted to, dig a hole in your um, back garden or in your window box and shove one of our packets in and, and seal it over. And within 10 weeks, it would have degraded. The products that we make are made from vegan, non-toxic raw ingredients. That's super important to us, not only because we want it to be good for the water system, but also because they're being made in people's homes. So they have to be safe for them to be used and mixed um, whilst they're being made. The majority of our ingredients are actually food grade and you would probably find them in your kitchen cupboards. You'd use them to bake cakes and stuff. So we've gone right back to the basics and saying, you know, we're not a 20 ingredient cleaning product company. We're a five ingredient cleaning product company. Um, They work, they perform incredibly well, but they don't leave any kind of lasting impact on our environment. Amazing. And you, you touched on, like earlier, you said that one of the reasons why other brands don't do this is a cost aspect. In terms of how you can, you know, it makes no sense to me if you can do something with five pure ingredients that are not going to do any harm to the environment versus four times that that are going to be more harmful. Like, is it purely a cost thing or are there other factors at play why these other businesses don't follow kind of like the buy route? Yeah, I mean, for the large organisations that have multiple SKUs, across multiple product ranges, they're constantly trying to find ways to get consumers to spend more money. And the best way for them to do that is through product innovation. And that innovation takes the form of additional functionality that we just don't need. So there's some really good case in points with fabric conditioners, for example. If you look at the kind of principal ingredients, and I read one the other day, it had 32 ingredients, of which probably only about 10 of them had anything to do with making your clothes smell nice and feel soft. And the rest were stabilizers, uh, pearlescent effect to make it look good when you poured it out of the bottle. You know, things that actually we don't need. We don't need it to look nice. We just need to know that it does the job. So that's the big difference between us is that we aren't trying to constantly kind of push things to get people to spend more money. We're saying, let's produce a product that performs well. The way that we can increase our revenue and scale is through recruitment of other customers longevity of our existing customers and creating the system that makes people want to keep supporting us i had um a very interesting conversation with a company that would probably be seen as our arch nemesis in terms of them being a chemical laden plastic encased uh cleaning product company and they asked how on earth we'd managed to get people to care about cleaning their toilets they're like people really have an emotional connection to cleaning the toilets with the products that we produce and as brands, they try desperately to get people to care about these things, but they will never do. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they can keep spending their time trying to throw new ingredients into something for not much benefit, and we'll just keep doing what we do. Yeah, please do. <laughs> I know me, like myself as a consumer, <laughs> you know, my decisions now are more about what does this company stand for and how are they doing something as opposed to does it have some fancy marketing or like branding or does it they have five different flavors um a lot of the things now we use yeah. in the household are like odd box or odd coffee like stuff that's that's going to waste otherwise or surplus and yeah so so i'm not surprised <laughs> that, that by having that success and the other companies are kind of starting to scratch their head to talk about the the other aspects which you talked about in your description of by the the home network that you've built yeah. could you just expand a bit more in, in terms of like how you go about building up that home manufacturing network and how that works Yeah, absolutely. So we are in a particularly privileged position in that we are completely oversubscribed for home manufacturers. And I think it's really symptomatic 
of the issues that these people face. So whilst the rest of the headlines are saying, oh, we've got a shortage of workers, we can't find anyone, I'm like, how so am I? I've got more than I need, and they're incredible people. They're very hardworking and passionate and inc- incredible ambassadors for us. They have found us through two sources. One is just word of mouth. The other is that we have strategic partnerships with um, employment charities. So we work with Breaking Barriers, which is a employment charity for refugees. We work for working ch- with uh, Working Chance, which is an employment charity for prison leavers. And we also work with um, Westminster Drugs Council and some smaller local charities. So we work with them to identify um, their clients that you know would want to, to come and be a part of the home manufacturing network. We have a policy which is a no questions asked policy. So we don't ask for CVs, we don't ask for references, we don't even conduct interviews with them because for many people that they either don't have a CV or references, perhaps because they've been in prison, they've got a gap in their CV. Um, for some people, the idea of having a call with someone is incredibly overwhelming and daunting. So all we ask them to do is to make our products. So we send out a small sample of everything we make with instructions, deliver it to their house and say, right, make it, we'll come and collect it. And we then test it to make sure it meets the standards that our customers and we expect. And if it does, then we onboard them. And it's as simple as that. They tell us how many hours they want to work. We will not onboard new home manufacturers until we fill the capacity of those that have already started working with us. Because for many of them, the financial contribution that we make to their household income is so vital that we want to make sure that they can rely on that. And that it's a consistent amount of money because it it, it becomes a vital part of, of their spending. What's really lovely to see is that the relationship between the home manufacturers. So we've had over, I think we've had over 320 applications of home manufacturers um, just in the last nine months. And we allow them to communicate with each other on, on, on platforms like Telegram. And they've actually like formed some really interesting friendships. And they're all over the UK. So we've got Scotland, Ireland, Cornwall, London, Wales. We're kind of covered everywhere. But they've created this kind of commonality and, and a way to come together. That's incredible. And I think I read that they're compensated in two ways. They have both um, like a steady salary, but there's also the opportunity for them to sell the products in their local communities and make some extra on top. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. To be really clear, they are self-employed. We do not employ them. They are self-employed and we support them with understanding what it means to be self-employed. So they get paid for the work that they produce, which backs into kind of an hourly minimum hourly amount. So if you are particularly proficient at making something, then you can earn considerably more. So at the moment, the average, blended average across all the home manufacturers, it, it equates to about £15 an hour, just over £15 an hour. The other way that they can earn money is that we have this affiliate scheme. Um, so they have their own affiliate links. If they sell any of our products, they earn commission on it. They don't buy anything. You know, They don't actually physically have to supply it to their local communities. We will do the distribution for them. So they can do it from their phones or from their homes or whatever they, you know, they need to do. The thing that's really important for us is that these people really struggle with the kind of normal nine to five hours that people would normally be able to keep. So we never dictate when they have to do any of this work. We just deliver raw ingredients on the Monday and tell them right on Friday, we're going to collect the finished product. So whether they choose to do that at three in the morning or whilst they're watching EastEnders, it doesn't really matter to us as long as we're ready to collect it on that day so that we can um, get it into our distribution system. Nice. Yeah, such a great, easy model. If I can take you back to the start of Bide, how did it all begin? Like, was it just yourself? Was there a team in terms of like how it was funded? Could you talk through that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of bootstrapping. So, um, So I started it 
in, uh, I founded it in March 2020. So whilst everyone else was making banana bread, I decided to, you know, build this <laughs> social impact driven purpose consumer brand as you do. And actually to be, you know, if I'm going to be really honest, I did that because I had had a really good career. I was proud of like my silly job titles and reflection. It was kind of superficial and a little shallow, but I liked that. And I was really concerned that if I started something new that was just about me and I failed, I was really worried about what that, how that would reflect on my career to date. So when the pandemic came along, obviously there were some awful things that happened through that. But for me, it afforded me the opportunity to just take a bit of a risk because I thought, well, everyone's distracted by this. If it doesn't work, no one will really know. Sounds cowardly. Um, and it probably was. But um, that was the starting point for me, was, was launching at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, the, the kind of impetus to get it going was that I have been following my own kind of change in, in lifestyle and sustainability journey. Um, my family and I left London four years ago. We bought an old chapel in, in rural Wiltshire, which I've converted into an eco home. So we power the home through solar. We heat the home and, and the water through air source. I grow our own food. You know, we're kind of trying to live this this um, most sustainable existence or responsible existence possible, uh, but it's incredibly expensive and very very complicated. And uh, I looked at the kind of my friends around me and thinking they're not, you know, they're still using wet wipes and they're kind of using lots of plastic and they they're not really changing anything. And when I spoke to them about it, it's because they were confused. They didn't know how to do it. They needed the convenience of the type of products they've been used to. And so that was really the aha moment for me for Biden. It's like, right, I'm going to produce goods that are really easy to use, have taken care of all that worry and concern as to how you become more responsible in your lifestyle. I'll do it for you. Um, and the first plan was that it was going to be a curated subscription box. And then I started looking at other people's products that I was planning to use. And I was like, oh my gosh, like they're made in factories where they've had like union issues or you know, they they are made in um, factories where they're not using renewable energy sources or they're being imported from China or whatever it might be. And I was like, how in good conscience can I launch a recommended service with these products aren't recommended at all? Um, so I started making them myself at my own kitchen table uh, and decided that the only way that this was going to be a responsible um, product offering was that if everything was sourced in the UK, made in the UK and distributed locally. Um, and so I started making it and then I taught some women locally in my community how to make it and they seemed to make it the same as I did. And we realized actually this is kind of interesting. Uh, and that's really how it kind of expanded. Um, so I bootstrapped initially. My family and I, um, rent out our home every other weekend on Airbnb, uh, to, to fund the beginning stages. We did a non-equity crowdfunding campaign a year into the business which was a real financial boost. Um, and on the back of that, I got a slew of some really fantastic angels that believe in both the kind of the social and the environmental impact. But ultimately, they, like me, identify that actually the application for this business model is global and the consumer demand for these type of properly purpose-driven brands is growing exponentially. And, and we're kind of tapping into it slightly ahead of the game. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. 
Trust me, check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Nice. And at, at what point on that journey did you feel like you'd really validated your hypothesis and you were like, there was definitely this need here, there was enough traction, I, I know this is something that can be scaled. Was it Was it still when you were bootstrapping, the crowd, the crowdfunding, or, or when the angels invested? Do you know, I think it's probably when I first didn't recognize someone's name who'd placed an order. Uh, I think when you've <laughs> kind of gone through friends and family and then you suddenly see someone yeah. you're like, I was, that was my like, oh my God, I don't know you. Um, and I think actually I emailed them to say, I don't know you. And I love that I don't know you, which maybe on reflection was a little, a bit of an odd email for them to receive. But I think that's when it was. Also, there were other milestones getting pick up in you know, refill stores. Mm. We're on milk grounds. We're now getting into retail. We've got some really big, business partnerships that we're going to announce soon you know that when I started the I think the benchmark of validation just keeps growing and growing and growing um and each one is a better reflection of actually I think we've hit it I think we've hit the sweet spot of what people are looking for um and uh, interestingly it's always the social impact is the piece that that tips people over the edge I think the environmental credentials as you alluded to earlier upcoming almost standardized this kind of a general consumer expectation that that's probably what a product should be in terms of being you know plastic free or whatever or palm oil free but it's the people impact that really helps us to stand out head and shoulders above other people 100 percent. and my next question you, you kind of touched on briefly there was going to be your kind of like growth strategies from what i could see that the main channel was like online direct to consumer kind of subscription model you mentioned some other channels yeah. there like what are the other routes to market and how may that change over the next couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that the UK is probably our beta test. And, you know, my ambition is that we move to the US very quickly because that's the market that's ripe for this particular business model and also for the type of products that we're producing. There's going to be significant growth for us in the next nine months in our B2B relationships. So we are in discussions with cleaning contracting companies to be there. Um, default cleaning provider. Um, we are going to be trialing our first prison workshop in August in, in a prison in North Bristol, where um, the residents of those prisons are going to be making goods that are then bought by the prison to be used on site. So we're creating this like fully circular system um, within premises, which is the biggest kind of growth area for us to do that for large organisations. Um, so definitely a growth would be to be international expansion we will never export our products ever so when we move into new markets we're replicating what we've already replicated here the other growth areas right now our first vertical is um in eco cleaning products um we're moving into body care um in the next six weeks uh, and then we're going to take up other verticals that exist within the home that not only have a kind of a domestic use but also again kind of help service those kind of b2b relationships that that we've been fostering oh wow that's super exciting i didn't realize you were going to diversify that much but that's that's incredible when you look back over the journey so far so kind of just over like two years and a bit in um what what's been like the biggest challenge to date what's what's been the hardest thing you've had to work through so far i think the biggest challenge has been moving in the kind of investment circles where i'm talking about the principles of our organization 
and they're just not used to having that conversation. So although most of the kind of funds talk about having ESG goals and align themselves, in actual, you know, in in the reality, when you look at their portfolio, that really isn't represented. So I think the biggest challenge is having conversations with people that can potentially give me a lot of money uh, for this company. But in those conversations, they'll say to me, well, if you just made it in a factory, then, you know, this is the type of margin impact you can see. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. So I think the biggest challenge is holding on to my principles when it could have been so easy to let them go. And, you know, it would have been an easier route um, to finance in the business. So that's that's a major challenge. Um, uh, and I think it's probably a challenge that I'm going to continue to face, particularly as we become more and more successful and we grow and people are more and more interested in us. Um, I think the other challenge is, is sticking to the guns of being principled when thinking about the kind of operational challenges. We've got a very complex operational system. Um, we haven't chosen the easy route of how we make goods and how we distribute them. And as we get bigger, that becomes more complex. But again, you know, we're a principal company for a reason and, and that's not something we're going to move away from. No, and you shouldn't do. Um, and on that first point you made, like I have um, I have a, a close friend um, who impact startup looking to get her first round of funding. And um, every time she went to investors, all the time they were just trying to get her to dilute her idea because it would be easier and more scalable. And there was this constant yeah. constant tension between the two. So I can completely see how that, that could work. Sorry, just on that note, though, the other thing is the, the, the benchmark. So the other thing that I found fascinating is the benchmark. They have these sustainability benchmarks. And a lot of them just put it down to your carbon neutrality as to whether you kind of can work within their framework of what an environmental investment could look like which is just madness like it's not it's not as simple as saying what's your carbon impact it there's a lot more complexity to it and and the innovation isn't looking at carbon impacts it's about how do you create new systematic change like it's anyway sorry i will no no no, no. um it's a passion it's a passion of mine and it's yeah 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 but we need people like you to keep educating within this space so that those things will change my Final question of kind of relating to Bide in the future. So you talked about kind of some of the, the plans you have for the next couple of years. If Bide achieves everything that you hope it can, like what does that future world look like? Yeah, so I would like Bide to be a future of work platform for people who can't participate in, in normal labour. I would expect that you would find our brand on the back of other people's packaging. So we would be the go-to um, company for even some of those nasty companies that I described earlier who want to be truly ethical and environmentally sound would come to us and say, hey, we want one line of our thousands that's going to be ethical and environmentally sound. We know that the only way we can do that is to be produced through your system. So, you know, the future of Bide or where Bide fits into the future is everybody has the opportunity to be active players in their local economies a truly transparent ethical supply chain, creating environmentally sound goods that challenge other brands to do the same, even if we don't produce that for them, um, with global distribution. If you look at microfinance as probably kind of creating the path for the type of distribution that we would look to follow, um, we would work in those same type of local communities environments. The sweet spot for our business model is densely populated areas where there's a high available workforce and a high available customer base. Um, so I would see us having high penetration in, in urban areas and um, in countries across the world. 
Love it. And um, if someone's listening today who is trying to <laughs> trying to live more responsibly, and I know you mentioned like outside of Vide, you've been on your own personal journey, you've converted um, Chapel into an eco home, plastic free life. Like, are there just some simple tips that you could give to people of how they could live more responsibly, like day to day? Yeah, I would say like go easy on yourself because you can't change everything overnight, and I think that's the biggest problem. Um, you have to keep, keep something or identify something that you think you can keep up. And actually, I think the biggest, so the, one of the biggest challenges I ever set myself was to reduce um, the number of bin bags that we would put in general household waste. And so I kind of set myself a challenge to reduce the number. And ultimately, that meant that I had to make some interesting choices as to how I was buying things. Um, and the biggest help for me was having a pre-loved only rule which we now have in our family home. So I've got four young children, not particularly planet friendly to have four of them, but I'm educating them. So hopefully they'll be like planet warriors or make up for how many of them there are. Um, but we have a pre-love strategy that applies to them and us. So uh, all birthday presents and Christmas presents have been pre-loved. All of our clothing is, um, all of our IT equipment in our company, like everything is pre-loved. And I think that's probably a really easy hack or easy switch for somebody to make to check first can I buy it secondhand before I go and buy it new and that will drastically reduce your waste and your household waste great advice and um in terms of chatting to you a little bit about your personal journey as a founder um I understand you've worked in startups before but never as a founder what have been some of the key lessons Mm -hmm. you've learned so far I've been really fortunate, actually, because I've worked in very, very big organizations, big corporate and also working in startups. And I think it's the combination of those two experiences that have best equipped me for being a founder, because I can take the kind of organizational structure of those large companies and being very formulaic and strategic about the decisions I make and understand that you have to kind of be lean, mean fighting machine and, and put those two together. I think the most important lesson I've learned is that it's particularly if you're a single founder, it can be incredibly lonely and it it can be incredibly tough to just keep yourself motivated to say I know this is a really like I'm in one of those deepest troughs right now but at some point I'm going to come out the other side and I think one of the things that's helped me is kind of leaning heavily into my friends who aren't founders who aren't kind of in the startup space who can just give me that kind of support and reassurance and give me the energy to keep on going. And then um, if you have to pick your toughest moment and proudest moment as a founder so far, what would they be? My toughest moment. My toughest moment. I think probably my toughest moment was going, was the night before we launched our crowdfunding campaign when I'd spent so much time and hype telling everybody that we were going to do this thing and knowing that it was about to happen and there was nothing that I could do about it was probably my toughest because I love getting my hands dirty and getting things done. And when you have moments like that where it's actually completely out of your control for that split second before you go live, that was excruciating. I mean, we we overperformed, so it all ended up in a beautiful story, but at that moment, that was really tough. I think my proudest moment, I have them a lot, actually. I'm incredibly blessed that I have a job um, and a company that just fills me with joy every day. Um, And most of that joy comes from those home manufacturers in our network. Um, Just last week, we had a lady who's come through Breaking Barriers, the refugee charity, 
She is a refugee from Nigeria. Um, she has been um, felt incredibly isolated, didn't really know how she could communicate with anybody in the local community. English is not her first language. Um, and she started working with us and she recorded a voice memo for me last week about how her life had completely changed and how she's now proud of herself. And she didn't think she could ever do anything like this. And just a few months ago, she was really depressed and now she's really happy and she's going out. And that is just like goose pump, bump, like tingling. Yeah. So that's when I feel most proud of it, knowing the like actual big impact that we're having on a daily basis. Yeah, I can imagine that that, that trumps everything else. Um, those little moments. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um, so the final section is talking about just kind of how you build and grow a tech for good business. Um, yeah. So for, for context for the listeners, in terms of how big the kind of like core buy team is versus the home manufacturing network, how, how big are the two right now? So we have seven people who are employed within the kind of the buy management team. We have external freelancers and agency that will grow, that grows that team to about 12. And then our active home manufacturers, we have um, just over 60. Nice. And in terms of the, the core buy team, like which skill sets have you have you prioritized hiring in in the kind of earlier days and, and, and why? Well, unusually, and this is not, I, if I wasn't doing buy, I wouldn't do this. But one of the first hires I made after myself was a chief people person. And that's because we're such a people-centric organization that we had to have somebody in place to say, how do we work with people? Like, how do we become the most supportive partners of this home manufacturing network? How do we do outreach? That's very unusual. Like, normally, that's a nice luxury to have someone in HR kind of further down the line. So it's quite unusual. Um, the next priority for us is, is people with operational experience because what we're doing is operationally very complex. So we needed people who can really help with logistics. Um, we outsource a lot of tech infrastructure that we need right now. Um, we are we have designed our own platform and our system, which is um, driven by a home manufacturing app. And that app has a Bluetooth connection to a weighing scale. So when they're in the mode of making, we can get live data on the speed at which they're making things, but also help them with the kind of checks with accuracy of, of weights and measures. Um, that will be built external to the organization. So when we haven't prioritized tech hire internally, for now. Got it. And with the, the seven people you have got in the core team, what, what yeah. kind of uh, traits or values have you really prioritized in, in hiring those people? Um, so I think being bold and thoughtful are the kind of the two values that we expect in people that join Bide. Um, and there's also kind of humility and honesty that they, they all um, also have as traits. So we don't have um, a, a kind of conventional hierarchy. We have a very kind of flat approach to the way that we all work with each other. Um, I get called CEO. I kind of hate it. Uh, it doesn't feel quite representative of, of my role within the organization. Um, but the commonality amongst all of us is that um, we understand that what we're doing is more important than our own egos. Um, so egos definitely get left at the door uh, and then the real people walk in. Yes. <laughs> yeah, as someone who only works small, kind of small early stage startups, definitely no egos. It's, it's too costly, especially when it's such a small team, but throughout the journey. Exactly. Um, and it sounds obviously huge plans to grow your product lines, to grow into new markets. Um, I assume there's going to be quite a lot of hiring going on over the next like, year or two. So are you going to be expanding across like all areas plus new ones? Like is tech going to start coming in-house or...? 
Yeah. So we are going to be, um, we will be trebling our team within about 12 months um, is our intention. And that's across mo- like multiple different areas of the business. So tech for sure. And then also extending into kind of growth hacking and, and the areas of our kind of customer relationships um, and management. Uh, we have bootstrapped ourselves financially, but also from a resource point of view, because I think one of the the biggest um, errors that a lot of um, startups make is hiring too many people too quickly um, and basically having more people than you actually have capacity for. And we've been super um, capitally efficient and that also extends to resource. And in terms of um, like how you plan to compete in those, the, the, you know, wherever you're going to grow, if it's sales, marketing, growth, um, products, it's competitive at the moment to hire in those areas. How, how do you feel like Bide will compete really well? Like what are the things that make you stand out within like the talent market? Yeah, I think our value system makes us stand out. Um, we've seen that in some of the agencies that we've attracted. We've, we've had branding companies and marketing agencies contact us saying, we see what you do and we want you in our portfolio. And I think that's going to extend towards the people that, that we find um, to hire and be part of this journey with us. Um, we also have a completely kind of open approach to what a kind of workplace environment looks like. So we don't have a headquarters. Um, we instead allow people from work from home or we create little regional hubs um, where they can go and, and meet with other people. Um, we also have a kind of an innovative way of looking at equity uh, distribution, not based on hierarchy, but based on the importance of that job for the company at the time. Um, we have a um, very kind of transparent approach where we ask all of our employees and home manufacturers to review us as if they were reviewing us on Trustpilot. And that happens every quarter. So we get you know, completely honest and direct feedback as to how we're um, acting as, as kind of partners in, the, in this progress. And I think all of those value systems um, is going to be very appealing, particularly for kind of a new generation of, of, of people who want to make real impact in the jobs that they do. Definitely. And, and like I said, you're going to be hiring over the course of the year. If, if someone's listening to this and like, I'd love to work for, for Bide, where's the best place for them to either find you or kind of get in touch with one of the team about jobs when you are hiring? Yeah. So the best place would be to either email us info at bideplanet.com or head over to our website, which is also bideplanet. Perfect. Well, Amelia, that's it. So thank you very much for your time. It's, it's been an absolute privilege. Thank you so much for having me, Craig. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.